This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Connie Matisse, the co-founder and CEO of East Fork. Founded in 2010 by Connie, her husband Alex, and their friend John Vigland, East Fork began as a small pottery studio. The company has since evolved into a thriving direct-to-consumer brand with a bustling manufacturing operation in North Carolina. I spoke with Connie about her complicated relationship with social media, the leadership lessons she learned at the helm of a fast-growing company, and why it's so hard to find a balance between idealism and business. This podcast is sponsored by Krypton Home Fabric. The design industry is abuzz about incorporating wellness into interiors with spaces devoted to relaxation and recharging. Now every room can include spa-level wellness because Krypton Home, Salient, and Kravit have collaborated to bring you the first bioresponsive home fabric. When you sit Sustainably sourced natural minerals within the fibers reflect your natural body heat back to you as infrared energy, the same energy found in saunas. Clinically proven health benefits range from improved cellular oxygenation to faster recovery times, improved sleep, and increased energy. The wellness-boosting bouquets, linens, and tweeds are sustainably woven in America at the Krypton Mills, and offered exclusively at Kravit. Experience this remarkable innovation for yourself in the Wellness Lounge at The Future of Home, September 12th and 13th, and learn more at Krypton.com. And now, on with the show. It was all the way back in June of 2019 that you and Alex appeared in the business of home offices and and we and we first introduce listeners to to East Fork Pottery and uh, and and to you but let's let's remind listeners a little bit of what East Fork is all about. Okay. East Fork is based in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, we are about 135 people deep at this point. Um, we are one of the largest producers of dinnerware in the United States. There aren't that many of us left. So um, we got started early on um, making craft pottery and then slowly scaled it up to a more kind of enterprise level manufacturing business. And I think we are known for taking our values really seriously and being highly opinionated to go hard for the things that we we believe in. And that's us in a nutshell. <laughs> well, interesting that you mentioned values. So when we first spoke with you back in 2019, this this mission statement had just been crafted and, and Alex read it a, aloud for us. And it was clear that that was a really important part of what you were all doing. That's true. Right? It still and, is. And that <laughs> that, that drives so much of of what you what you seem to be all about. Yeah, and I think it's we had a lot of words that all felt really good that we put together on paper and we said them over and over again to each other and they all sounded about right, but really month after month, year after year, 
really living into it um, has changed the changed the meaning and or not changed it just like added so much more texture and um, and and wisdom and clarity around around that mission statement and around those values that we wrote when we were really pretty young before we really had spent much time <laughs> actually having to do them <laughs> well exactly so you sort of laid out all of these good intentions right and and things that you wanted to stand for and then you set off to grow dramatically and change so much of what the company was about and the scale and uh, focus and you took on some different roles and we'll get into all of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that Alex always had a desire to grow a really big business. Um, that was something that between that. So Alex is my husband. He's also the the founder, the original founder of East Fork. And our business partner, John, was another um, original founder. So the three of us um, got together um, early on and Alex and John were at that point making making pottery together in a workshop. And I was just kind of helping out um, grow the business and, and start to bring some marketing elements, marketing light elements to what they were doing. And uh, Alex had this very clear vision of wanting to grow a business that was big. And John and I kind of heckled him a lot because when we tried to get him to define what big meant to him or like when was enough or like, you know, what plateaus were we reaching toward? That's always been a really difficult question for him to answer. And now he's really kind of in the last six months, I'd say, just undergone the process of figuring out like, what does big mean and why? Why so big? And um, I think because it was not as defined as it is now about what exactly that meant, John and I always had a little bit of a hard time wrapping our heads around it. So it was almost like Alex was kind of painting a big picture and then John and I were constructing it, but without like a f- real full picture of of what the what the thing would look like when it was done. Well, when you say it, it, it wasn't as clear then as it is now, what what has become more clear for you? Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, there hasn't really been like numbers put on paper or like a, a head count um, hmm. put on paper quite yet. We, I mean, we have projections that are uh, you know, for the next five or six years of, of what that could look like. But, um, you know, we don't want to be around just for five or six years. We'd like to be around for 100, 150, 200 years. And so I think that in Alex's head, it doesn't make sense to try to to say what, what it's going to look like in 200 years. And um, so maybe there's clarity around like the reason – the reasons behind why he wants to grow it and some clarity around like um, the type of growth we want to to see um, while we have like a very clear mission and we have a very clear understanding of our values and the, the things that do and don't matter to us. We're also pretty realistic about the the changes around us and the the things that are totally out of control on a, on a global scale. And um, so the idea of like saying, this is what the business is going to look like in 250 years feels kind of just like a, a fool's errand because you know, who knows what the world's going to look like in 250 years. Our hope is that Eastfork's going to figure out how to continue bringing purpose to the table regardless of how society changes and the the means we go about doing that might look different than we're thinking they would. Elaborate on bringing purpose. What does that mean to you? Oh, what does that mean, Dennis? What is, what is bringing purpose? <laughs> oh, man. Tell me. I don't know. I've been really, I don't even know. Like, do, do companies need to have a purpose? I don't know. I think that for for me, like, when we're talking specifically about growth, like, is growing the company actually serving the the purpose of expanding, deepening, spreading, um, and, like, making more real and more aligned the the mission that we we propose to put out there? And, um, like, are, are we continuing to... Um, make a product that is 
made with a lot of care and love and, and where people who are making that actually feel connected to the product that they're making and the people who are, are, are selling it still feel good about having to, to market and sell a product and the people who receive the product, are they feeling like the product is adding value to their home and in any way? I, I think that you know, for me, our pottery really um, elucidates a feeling of like groundedness and they just feel kind of at home wherever they are. Um, and, I, and I like that about them. So are, are we still providing an object to people who, who, who can bring them into their home and like and kind of make it their own and um, find some joy and groundedness from the product. And I don't know, that's a, I feel like trying to, I, I don't have, I'm not, I'm not the type of CEO founder who has like a canned answer for, you know, what does purpose mean? And cause it changed for me, it's just like, it really changes every day. And well, exactly. It seems very fluid for you. You're, it seems like you're always thinking about it and, and it's hitting you in, in different ways at different times. And always, I think, also poking holes in it. Like, I think that that what I, uh, over the last few years, when when we are, we've all seen so many businesses come and go and so many founders be like, this is my elevator pitch and this is what we're disrupting and this is the purpose that we're bringing. And it's just like the same spiel over and over again. And I think that I there was a point maybe in my life where I was a little bit better at that or we were trying to practice that. And then like, it never really held water after a few months. Like it, those things need to evolve and you need to question mm. yourself and be like, how much good are we really doing in the world? I think it's so important for people who lead, lead values led business to like actually take a look in the mirror and be like, does it really matter? I mean, I, I do think what we're doing matters, but I, I think that yeah. part of why it matters is because we're not saying we're changing the world by having a values aligned manufacturing business in the United States. I, I think having those kind of lofty goals of, of, um, I don't know, just not too big for your britches. So that's I'm in that state right now, which is why I'm having a hard time <laughs> well, answering right. that question. And, and and you're as you say, you're you're poking holes in a lot of things or you're rethinking and, and reanalyzing and, and part of that has to do with so much transition and, and, and right and rethinking sort of your role. Well and and actually and, and hopefully we can talk about this, but I mean when we first spoke with you back in 2019, there was a there was a different structure in place. You were handling the marketing side, and uh, and John, as you mentioned, was CFO, and Alex was CEO, running the company. There was a shift. There was a transition. You were elevated to the CEO role. What what first brought that about, and then we'll we'll talk about how that has evolved. When we were starting the business, we were just like a bunch of 20-something-year-olds who were like crafty people and anarchists and, you know, just <laughs> like, yeah, I think like Alex had worked at like a, at a car shop, like fixing Volkswagens and like on the trails in New Hampshire. And I had just like had like a bunch of odd jobs and John right. had been an artist. So like the, I think that when we started to form our, our organizational structure, um, we just kind of like latched onto the things that we were naturally good at. And we um, most of the time stayed in our lane and we all had the things that we were interested in doing. And And then it got to a point where I was not so much staying in my lane and the company was getting big enough where we really needed to be intentional around forming a company culture and an operating cadence and having meeting charters and figuring out who our like, you know, top level of, of executive committee leadership was, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I had lots of ideas about um, how I thought <laughs> that that should go. Um, and at that time, we you know Alex was was serving in the CEO position, but we um, we were also still just like three friends doing business together, and we didn't really have um, we hadn't really had active conversations around the, how the three of us worked together. Um, and we'd been doing it for a really long time, um, and we were all burnt out. 
And whatever we were doing, like, just wasn't working. We were just, like, and poor John was just, like, always the third wheel to me and Alex like, bickering about all of the things that I thought Alex was doing wrong and all of the things that Alex wishes I had said differently. Just, it was a mess. <laughs> it was really, really bad. And um, Alex would very wisely point out that it probably had something to do with the three of us at the top, quote, like, not being in healthy relationship with each other. And he was totally right about that. I think it, it took me a long time. I was just did not want to have hold accountability there. I, I liked mm. the idea of like, I don't know, it felt there was something about that um, that really made me really defensive. And But I think calling that alarm, John and Alex are both like, something's got to change. And, and it was actually John's suggestion that maybe um, I would be well suited for this role in this particular moment in time. Um, I think we had a lot of uh, big decisions that we needed to, to make around how the company was run. And I had a lot of opinions that I felt um, very strongly about that I um, I just really wanted to put into play. And so moving into that role helped me put those things into play. And then Alex was then allowed the opportunity to start thinking about what happens next. So started to think about new campus builds and all of the external vendor relationships, building like what does factory 3.0 look like? All of those things that I can't even begin. Like what, what Alex is really good at is like looking at a pile of dirt and being like, see that pile of dirt, that thing in five years with this amount of money is going to look like this. He has that, that ability to to kind of vision out new possibilities and get people excited about them that I really don't. I, I have other visiony skills, but not definitely not ones that are that are all that practical in the short term. But honestly, it wasn't good, and it, and it makes sense that it wasn't. And I think that, that at this point, the three of us have all forgiven each other and ourselves for for it feeling as bad as it did because we were doing a lot. I had two small kids. Alex and I were like raising babies while also growing this company so fast, and we were just exhausted, just so burnt out. And so that flag that we needed to change our leadership structure was just like a really beautiful catalyst for us to spend some really intentional time thinking about the type of leaders that we wanted to be. And I think also moving away from this idea that East Fork leadership looked like one particular thing and more into the idea that every single person who was an East Fork leader needed to figure out what leadership looked like for them, which has been really helpful. Um, And then we made that transition. I stepped into the CEO role. Um, I had kind of an agenda of things that I wanted to accomplish. And at this point, I've accomplished most of those things that I that I went into the um, position wanting to do. And that's that's felt really good. But with Alex turning his attention to um, what was farther afield, like thinking more about what happens in seven to 10 years, we understood the purpose of it, but what the business really needed him in the here and now. And so I think for a while, he just was like, feeling like he had so much more he wanted to be contributing and could be contributing in like in the short term. And the the business was kind of suffering from his being thinking about what happened next. And so just recently he's really re-engaged with like the day-to-day in this way that's been really game changing and um has has got him really excited about um about kind of doubling down his commitment and and we're already seeing like noticeable impact on on the company really being supported by that. Well, so just to help listeners understand what some of the big priorities were mm-hmm. for you when you took over the CEO role, because as we've as we've talked about the challenges of scaling, the challenges around this this culture, and what do we really stand for, and our values, and and what are we trying to accomplish, mm-hmm. and what is this purpose driven business all about? What were some of the top items for you that you really wanted the opportunity to to take the reins of leadership and 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 change? Mm-hmm. Agenda item number one was just establishing a a leadership team um, at an executive committee level 
um, like a one person overseeing each of the distinct departments, sales, marketing, production, people and culture, and getting that team just so in lockstep, um, deeply collaborative, um, bringing in people who had big ideas, but also were understood the kind of idiosyncrasies of our of our business, who were down to do things differently, like finding all of those people who were going to have ownership over each of those departments and then getting them working really, really well together. And so I, I think building a team, kind of figuring out who those people need to be and how those skills complement each other is, is something that I'm pretty good at. Um, and so we got that team together. We started meeting weekly. <laughs> we, that wasn't something that was like, we didn't have someone overseeing sales. We had like, I was still overseeing marketing while I was in the CEO position for a while. Like there was just like, there was some real needs for for just making hires who could have some autonomy over their decision making. And then step two was was developing that, um, a culture of being able to give honest feedback to each other, be able to have a lot of self-awareness around our own skills and weaknesses, develop a whole language system around how we talk about the ways we show up at work when we're under-resourced. Um, um, and then I had all sorts of other things around um, you know, in the in the people and culture side, like how do we how do we handle conflict? How do we um, have honest conversations with each other? What are the resources in the human? We have a, a very big department that um, supports both like our community relationships with our with um, other partners in Asheville and the Western North Carolina, um, and we have people who are, are really there just to be a resource for um, people on the team to be able to connect them to different you know, mental health resources or housing resources, whatever, whatever it is that might come up. So I, I did a lot of um, work around defining the ways that we did and didn't support people at work, trying, trying to draw lines around how we can show up for people in a workplace and like be with their whole selves and also keep some strict boundaries around, I don't know, I think at, because we were like a family business, we, we had that desire to like help employees, but we also hadn't really codified what it meant to be a helper in that, in a business, in like a, a employer-employee relationship. And so I think there was a lot of overstepping of boundaries and trying to help in places that really weren't our places to help that actually ended up causing more harm in the long run. Um, and so I wanted to figure out how can we be really, truly be in service to our employees with some really good boundaries around what that looked like and um, you know, what are the things that we could deal with internally and what are the things that we could say, here's like a, a list of 25 incredible resources and here's someone that I'm going to put you in contact with who is not your employer, um, who you can go have a good conversation with. So that that was work that I was excited to do with them. Our, our director of people and culture now, Manny Ayala, who's, who's awesome. He's just a, a rock star and he can, I trust all the decisions that he makes with when I'm not in the room. We're taking a quick break from the show to remind you about Krypton Home Fabric. Krypton Home Fabric is easy to find, sample, and specify. A trusted partner to top names in design, their beautiful performance fabrics are found in leading showrooms, such as Kravit, Fabricut, Tebow, Charlotte Fabrics, United, and Anna Elizabeth. And in retail trade programs, such as Our House, Design Within Reach, Ballard Designs, and Floyd. Plus, they're featured at over 80 high-point market furniture showrooms. Find your favorites at Krypton.com. And now, back to the show. It also sounds like you're very connected, and you and I have talked about this, to where you are, to, to Asheville and everything that is going on there, the housing challenges, the affordability challenges, mm. all, all of that. And that's all very real for a lot of your staff. Yes, definitely. I think that was um, 
that was an early decision that we made when we were trying to think about how we wanted to have impact and um, and like you know what what fundraisers did we give to or what was our cause that we hung our hat on and um, I think that it, it's an intimidating thing when when you're trying to get into that because there's so many places in the world that need help and there's so many there's so many fights to fight and um, you know you, you can't fight them all none of us can can fight everything and I I yeah. feel really strongly about fighting the fights that are that are closest to you and and giving the care that is needed that's closest to you and so as we grew the company we we doubled down on our commitment to um, putting all of our, our community work into the communities that we nested within. Um, so we're in, in Western North Carolina and Asheville is recently, um, it has been <laughs> heavily marketed to the rest of the country for about a decade yes. now um, with much success. A lot of money gets poured into the Asheville city marketing uh, department. And then since the pandemic happened, like just the amount of third, fourth, fifth, sixth homes um, that people have here that they spend no time in that. Um, and also stuff that's like really, really bad for the people who've lived here for a really long time, who are from here, and who people who are just trying to trying to make it work, trying to 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 raise their families and take care of their their parents. Like it's it's a hard place to be um, if you aren't um, tapped into that tourism money, and if you're aren't moving here with a lot of wealth. Right. Um, there's very little housing um, for for residents anymore, um, and it's getting worse and worse. And so. We've just seen like an influx of, of tourism and um, and just people in, in local and regional government who want to to do better, but um, it's hard to figure out how to do that. And I think a lot of people are, I don't know, whatever. We can we'll save that conversation for another time. But we do focus <laughs> our we focus our, our our giving our community work here in Western North Carolina, and and so each quarter we'll support. Um, we work with a, a different community partner, social social justice minded community partner. Um, to and, and kind of kind of custom make a package of of um, what support looks like. Um, we have someone full time, a community impact manager who spends her whole working life um, building real lasting relationships with community partners and meeting them for lunch and really understanding what it is they're they're needing from from partnerships and who they are and and really asking the community, hey, how how can East Fork support? Um, you know, is it a fundraiser? Is it actually a uh, do you want to come have a photo shoot so that you have some marketing materials? Like there's there's countless ways that we we work with partners, and that's been really gratifying. Well, getting back to the transition to to CEO, one of the major components of that was you supposedly stepping away from marketing, uh-huh. right? And let's tell people what what happened in that in that process. Yeah, let's let's start with. Um, the the commitment I made to myself, I mean, really six years ago, I, I I knew that the way that we were approaching our marketing was not sustainable. Um, I knew that it was effective, and I was getting lots of pats on the back for it. Um, but it was, you know, the, we we really did grow the business extremely organically. We've spent very very little money on paid advertising. And we've grown really, really quickly. And a lot of that growth can be attributed to me running my mouth on Instagram and on podcasts and um, sharing pictures of my children and showing, sharing really intimate, relatable details um, to our audience. And, and, and lot, not so much in an aspirational way. I think there are plenty of people who follow us who do like like my aesthetic and whatever. But I also you know, have a tendency to, to say the thing that needs to be said. 
and to kind of slowly push some, expand some, some people's thinking and, and doing, doing so in a really loving and understandable way. And so I, I think that's been really, really critical to East Fork's growth. And it's hard to, to downplay that contribution. And also, so being all in that type of marketing, while, while it was both effective and real, I also knew really early on that it wasn't sustainable that it was a, a risk both for myself and for the business, really. Um, I mean, two things. One, that it was a risk for myself and the business. Um, people having that much access into my personal life like, was eventually going to have a toll on my mental health. I knew that way before it did. Um, and then also, it just does not survive the Connie gets hit by a bus or wants to go on a vacation test. And I had grown the business by, like I said, kind of being outspoken and very vocal and, and sharing a lot personally. But if I, I'm, a, I'm human and if I were to make a, a egregious mistake and say something that was really the wrong thing to say and, and um, that could have terrible impact on, on my business and not to say that people can't make mistakes. Like I, I make a ton of mistakes all the time and I think part of being a good leader is being able to, to hold yourself accountable for those mistakes publicly and, and talk about what you've learned and move on. But it just was, it was way too risky business. So that's the one thing. And then the other thing is that I um, I had seen so many, there's just like a real lack of humility around thinking that I could potentially be the only person to who's able to lead the business from here into eternity. I know very well that, that every generation that comes after the one before has <laughs> new ideas that should be listened to by the grownups in the room. Um, I think that, that the grownups in the room do a, a great disservice to themselves and to humanity by not paying more attention to to children and to teenagers and to, to young people who um, who really are the ones who are going to be bringing new ideas that, that should be listened to and incorporated into how, how society runs. And so I, I knew early on that I wanted to start figuring out how I could kind of let go of the death grip that I had on the brand and the brand storytelling. But doing that was a, a, a totally different task. Um, I think because I was actively, I, if I had six years ago said, all right, I'm going to take six months, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write a beautiful document explaining exactly how I want this brand to be communicated into the world. I, you know, maybe I, maybe I could have done better, but um, yeah, I've just had a hard time with it. I, I've, I ended up um, hiring somebody to hire the market, to run the marketing department who had a long career in, in marketing. Um, he's a brilliant guy. Um, However, he was, you know, doing the type like transitioning from me, kind of doing a share all, tell all, live journal style of brand building, to passing that off to someone who had a very different approach um, that was much more textbook marketing playbook um, that a playbook that really works for big giant established companies. Um, it just it didn't work, it, you know. There's for all the obvious reasons, but I also kind of knew going into it that. I wasn't going to be able, like the first try at, at getting out of that wasn't going to be, that I would probably have to ta- have a few tries for that to be successful. So anyway, I'm back into, I'm still, I still have the CEO title, but um, after our director of marketing, I'm transitioned into a part-time chief of staff role um, for a little bit to help us get off, get annual planning um, for 2023 off the ground. I somehow adopted the marketing team again, which is, looks like right now me having 18 direct reports that don't get any attention from me at all. Um, and all of the good managerial behaviors that I'd really committed to building over the past few years have just gotten thrown out the window. And 
I don't know. We're definitely not back at square one. Like the team has learned so much. And actually for the first time ever in in company history, um, there've been two full weeks of posting on Instagram that I have not even had to, I've had nothing to do with. (laughs) I've had nothing to do with it. It's amazing. That's a huge accomplishment. Like the team is really starting to understand um, how to do it. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, but I definitely need to hire some marketing professionals. Right. So there's a, there's a, whole host of conversations in there. How do companies think about founders either playing less of a role or stepping away from a role or uh, or, or supporting the community in a different way and, and, and what that what that means. Dennis, I also think though, I think it also has um, a conversation around like how how does our society relate to work and how do we, you know, not just for me, but like talk going back to what we're talking about before of those sorts of what happens at the top really impacting how the, all of company culture, like are there things that that we can do to to model better self-care and better boundaries around our identity and our workplaces? And um, so that this this idea that like the, the things that we do to put money in the bank to cover our rent doesn't have to be so deeply entwined with our sense of self and our sense of identity and sense of community. And I, I wish that I could wave a wand and, and have a four-day work week at East Fork right now. I, mean, I think that, that that conversation is so interesting to see happening in, in the tech world and in office-based work. But as a manufacturing company, it's it's really difficult to to flip that switch because you have to, you know, there's hours in the day and that those hours turn into more pots or less pots made. But I think that's really important. Like I, I think that that Alex and I have both modeled a, an over identification with with work um, in a way that I'm really eager to shift, not just for myself, but for um, the people that that I that I manage and for my for my own children and hopefully for many um, in our society <laughs> of of uh, go hard girl bosses who burn out real quick and <laughs> cause a lot of harm <laughs> along the way. <laughs> well. This whole issue of burnout, as you say, this 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 whole issue of of reassessing what are we doing all this for, and this this growth for growth's sake, and I mean, and 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 as you also just said, how do we begin to model better behavior, better self care? It took a real toll on you. I mean, as as sick as you are right now <laughs> at this moment, getting over this cough, you were even far more burnt out and 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 really not in 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 good shape and had had driven yourself there in the pursuit of more pots and yeah. more yeah. sales and all, all of it. I mean I've always been the kid who like puts themselves in the hospital during finals at going in college but like the that like that tendency to just like push past limits even it's it's not it's not good. I mean I don't think that's it's it's interesting to see how that shows up differently culturally for for people. I think you know John is much more like a he when he feels in moments of stress his his go to is to withdraw and to like pull back, close the door, like kind of reserve energy. And mine is to just like move forward, give more, give more, give more. Um, but you know it's pretty easy to see how that impacts your the quality of the work that you're doing. Um, and when I get in those places where I just feel like this thinking that like there, I can see every single pro, everything that's not perfectly right right now. And I alone can go in there. I, I alone have the tools and the the drive and the responsibility to fix every single problem for every single person who works for me. I mean, it is, it is psychotic <laughs> thinking. It's so bad, but it's so wacky how, how quickly I drift into that 
into that type of thinking when I'm not taking care of myself. And I just, I got to cut the cord, you know, like, I, I think there's something when, when the pandemic happened, we were so committed I and mean, we've done such a good job of it. I, I am really, really proud of the work we've done, but we were so committed to keeping a hundred percent of our staff employed for the past few years. And, and we're still committed to that. Um, and I, I don't, I can't think of another business who didn't have to do layoffs or, or big you know, changes in business structure to, um, over the past few years, particularly on the manufacturing oh, side. I mean, yeah. when, right, I mean, that's, yeah, in manufacturing, yeah, you gotta, there, are, there are people who cannot work from home, and um, we right. somehow managed to keep our customers engaged and to tell them that pots were on the way, even though they could maybe get their pot in eight weeks. Like we did so, like just constant pivots to to keep the bills paid and to um, and to keep people interested and to and to not cut any corners, like to continue increasing benefits, increasing pay, doubling down on community. All of the things that that made East Fork East Fork, like we had zero interest in sacrificing those, but that came at the at the price of you know certain team leaders just doubling down on how much they were putting into it, and and I for one like have that I have that kind of like cultured martyrdom of feeling like I have to figure out how to take care of people, and I value that quality in myself, but it's also like it takes away a lot of autonomy for the people that you work that work for you thinking that like your company is the one and only thing that can, that's going to get them through this, this one precious life. So yeah, I've just been, been having to, to wrestle a lot with like, what do I owe to this company? What do I owe to people? Like what's the difference between like my obligation and responsibility and like, I don't know, like living the life that I want to live. I don't know. Those are all the questions that I, that I'm chewing on right now. Hello listeners, Dennis Scully here. I'm excited to announce that Business of Home's Future of Home Conference is back, taking place in New York City this fall, September 12th and 13th. Future of Home will be two days of future-focused exhibitions, small group workshops, networking opportunities, and riveting discussions with leaders of the industry. I'll be your host, alongside my colleague Caitlin Peterson and Fred Nicolaus. And I promise, it's going to be great fun. Get your tickets now at futureofhome.com. And of course, a huge shout out to our sponsors. High Point Market, Benjamin Moore, Brizo, The Tile Shop, Universal Furniture, Hunter Douglas, Afterpay, EQ3, Parachute, Polished, ZZ Driggs, Krypton, and Cole. I can't wait to see you there. It was interesting going back and listening to the conversation that we had together three years ago. There were these strong elements coming through from you uh, <laughs> I'm scared. I'm scared. around. Well, it's it it it's so fun. So so I've spent more than half of my life married to a Berkeley grad, and there is a counterculturalism. <laughs> that runs deep <sighs> mm-hmm. in my wife and in you. Mm-hmm. And so there is this struggle, this anti-capitalism is one way to frame it, mm-hmm. but it's but it's deeper than than that. It mm-hmm. it and as we talked about earlier, it's it's poking holes in in a lot of just preconceived notions or how society is formed and run and how are we governed and what's what's fair and what all, all of okay. these issues. And the good and stuff. You, now we're talking about the good right. stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean <laughs> and this is this is the stuff that in many ways I think is 
so challenging for you to find a comfortable place mm -hmm. with with ideas that sometimes you feel yourself sort of pushing away from yes. and and rejecting, right? Absolutely. I mean, I don't believe that one single plate ever, one more plate <laughs> needs to be added to this world. Nobody needs anybody to make another plate. Nobody needs anybody to make another bookcase. No one needs anyone to make another curtain. There is so much stuff on this planet, Dennis. <laughs> it runs so counter to my belief or to my, to my, the own, the way that I want to be living my life to be convincing people that they need to spend money on things that I actually don't think need to be produced. Right. So, you know, I, I work very hard in marketing to not use those. If we do have some, some things codified at, at East Fork, it's around, um, not using language like, trust me, you need this, or ever purporting to put words into a customer's mouth or to speak on their behalf. Like we, we mm -hmm. really use I statements in marketing and we say, I like this thing. We never assume that someone else might like, oh, trust me, you'll love this or any, anything like that. Um, and that's, that's really important to me. And I'm, I'm going to fight tooth and nail for that to be in the brand book when, when we do eventually get one made. But it's tricky. I, I think that, I, but I think that all businesses really need to be asking themselves that question. Like, who is this actually benefiting? Like, why am I doing this? Like, do I believe, can I like go to sleep at night really believing that I am doing good in the world by making and selling more things? I believe that East Fork is serving a, a beautiful purpose in our economy and our culture right now. I'm really proud of how we show up in the world. I think that us running this business and having these conversations and asking ourselves these questions while we're running the business is super important. I mean, Alex likes to say, like, you know, people need to pay their rent. People need to buy groceries. And we are sure. employing a 130 people at East Fork who um, would otherwise be working in hospitality in the growing tourism business, which, um, <laughs> you know, that's, we all know my opinions on that. So, um, you know, it, there's there's a lot to, you got to wrestle in that tension. I think really beautiful things can, can come up. Like had I, had I stayed on my, the trajectory that I was going on, which was, you know, very anti-capitalist, um, activist work, um, writing, you know, food centers, it's just like gone off and like not been in this world. Like I, I I've learned so much about how I can take the skills that I've learned here and apply them to, to something different moving on and, um, uh, having to, to, to face current reality in, in the way that I do, I think has, has helped me challenge some of the ideas that I, my 18 year old self had. And I still believe in all those ideas, but now they've like, they've, they've kind of, I've put them through the, the logic test in a lot of ways um, to think that this is the only one that we have to keep doing forever, ever, and always. It's just so boring to me. It just like lacks creativity. And so I, I think like as we're thinking about, you know, as we're talking to a group of, of designers and people who are really interested in putting things together in new ways and making old things new again and new things old again and um, making things that haven't existed before. Like I know it's easy to say that like, well, nothing, nothing new, there's nothing new anymore, you know. But that's not, that's just so not true. Like, of course there are new, there's so many, or there's, there are, there are old ideas that, given enough attention and, and brought to center, the new idea can move from idea world into living, breathing, 
existing worlds. And, and that's what I'm, I'm really interested in creative people starting to engage around. Like, how could we be relating to each other differently? Well, and I, and I think a lot of companies during COVID discovered that they had to make do with far less. Mm-hmm. We talked to so many of the big furniture companies and they weren't able to get their deliveries. And so they had to reaccessorize their showrooms with existing furniture pieces or they couldn't come out with all these big new introductions. And you know what? It was just fine. Mm-hmm. And designers actually discovered, oh, I didn't even notice that piece last time I was here. We shown it in a different way. It's actually a piece we've had for some time. I mean, minds have been opened to this notion. And yes, we are a consumer-driven society, and we constantly are are told that we have to be out there buying new things to support the very life that we all want to, to, to have, right? It is so woven And I in. love nice, like, I love things. <laughs> yes. like, I love objects. Like, Get you know, it. we were talking about this before, but, like, I think there's nothing wrong with, like, just wanting, like, seeing something so beautiful and just, like, wanting to wrap it around. Like, I bought the most ridiculous, like, orange velvet scarf thing for way too much money that I saw recently. And I was like, oh, I I just was like moved by it. I had to have it. And spending more time alone and like getting to know yourself and like developing a real sense of self and personal identity and building a framework around like what you do and don't like and what does and doesn't bring you pleasure. And, um, you know, what are the colors that like make you feel good? Like the, the more you actually just like move yourself away from the chitter chatter of what's happening on the internet and all of in, in the advertising world and just sit down and spend some time getting to know yourself. Like you develop a, a real strong sense of personal style and, um, and attraction to this or that. And you don't have to buy as much stuff. Like I just went through, I had so much stuff in storage over the last few years. Cause I've just been wearing, I've been wearing this one t-shirt that says, man, I love frogs on it for like weeks. It's like a pair of cutoff jeans because all my stuff has been in storage. I haven't had to go to any parties. And I was just taking all my clothes out and I was like, dang, like I have beautiful things. Like I don't ever have to buy another dress ever again. Like I I don't. Like, and I, I, I felt, I just, this may be silly, but I just felt really proud of myself 10 years ago for like choosing a garment that when I pulled out today, I'm like, this thing is fresh. Like I would put this on and go to, a fancy party at like a, a MoMA opening tomorrow yeah. and I would look good in it. You know, like this, we don't need to be like buying something. Like, and I know everyone's talking about like conscious consumerism and all that. Like it's not like a new conversation, but I think that to to bring it back to, to root it in like developing a, a real personal outlook on life um, is going to bake it in more. Like when I walk through my house, like everything that's in my home is just something that brings me so much joy. And it's just like, most of it's like stuff that I've been carrying around with me all over the country for decades. And I don't, I don't need anything new. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's wonderful to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and in your, in your own home and in your own life. And we continue to, to struggle with, with how this is going to play out. We're finally, I think, becoming much more conscious of the sustainability issue and and what this all means. And the United States has been sort of slower than much of our, many of our trading partners in Mm -hmm. Western Europe and elsewhere to to sort of really dig into this issue and Mm. and what it's going to mean longer term. I sense that some, some meaningful changes are 
starting, right? To to come I sure about. Hope so, but then you have Elon Musk out there saying that the number one threat <laughs> threat to society is the population collapse. My lord. I mean, I think that there are some interesting conversations emerging and I, I do see some changes, but the the powers that be on the other side, they've got a lot of money and a lot of power. And I mean I just was getting all. I mean, I don't. Did I get been out of shape about this lithium battery situation? I think I did. I'm still on that. <laughs> I'm just like, oh gosh, like we just manufacture so many new hells, Dennis. Um, yeah. So I do. I think that's why you know while, while I don't being that the CEO at East Fork is is not my my sole work. I, I also see it's important for me to be here right now because I, I do think that businesses like ours need to start having these conversations very vocally, um, and and not just one or two of us. Like every I mean, those those big companies, they've got so much power. And while I love I love the thought of someone being able to, you know, some guru going and having some breakthrough with people who have gobs of power and money and getting them to change, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So there needs, needs to be like a anyone who believes this stuff needs to be talking about it all, all the time to everyone, everyone who will listen. Right. And and so do you feel that, that East Fork can have a voice and that voice can have power and and authority and 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 help i'm kind of pessimistic if i'm being honest i think that in the u.s there's so many people who have it really good and there's so many people who really don't like there are people who are moments away from like just one one missed paycheck away from being in a really really bad spot there's people who are already in really bad spots like we have such the gap between people who have it really really well and people who don't is it's just vile it's criminal it's just like it's like I can't tolerate it, and I think it's going to take a lot more people kind of coming face to face with um, resource scarcity. And I don't know, I see things getting really bad before they get really good. To be honest, that's sort of what I'm sensing as, yeah. as well. That it, it there are so many people who are just denying this whole climate issue. There are mm-hmm. so many people who are just denying all of these all, the homeless challenge that we that we see in so many of our big cities around the the country. That mm-hmm. people it's it's a nuisance, but we we don't seem to be really getting at the heart of what is creating mm-hmm. the nuisance to shoppers. Yeah, because we uh, still have but, life pretty good. Like there's there's a lot right. of us. Like it's until one's own personal resources are you know are are at risk, I think it, it's it's really hard to get people to change behavior. You are making a lot of big changes for East Fork. Mm-hmm. When we first spoke, the company was growing 100, 200% mm-hmm. a year, and it's just crazy, crazy growth. And that has continued, mm-hmm. uh, right? And, and we could have had a whole separate conversation around scaling the business mm-hmm. and all the craziness around that. But what do you imagine on the whether we're on the eve of having some kind of meaningful recession or mm-hmm. some believe we're already in this recessionary slowdown we've had two quarters of, of negative growth for for you and for east fork what does that look like what is that what does that feel like yeah so over the summer we had a really bad um april may like we just like missed revenue assumptions by like half like we just it was bad. And we put ourselves into a really crunchy cash position where we were starting to have really difficult conversa- conversations around what we would need to do to, to, keep, um, to keep the business up and running. And I, I, the, the conversations around, like everyone was like sharing all of these decks from financial advisors around, res- how res- around recessions. And the conversation really quickly turned to a conversation around macroeconomics and what we needed to do to protect ourselves from it. 
I just don't know how useful that is, especially at a company our scale. It, I think for us, the real issue was that we've been talking to the same group of customers for a really long time because, like I said, we haven't done prospecting advertising on on Meta and we haven't gone out and done like a big, um, you know, subway takeover or anything like that. Like we just haven't spent the money that we needed to spend to acquire new customers or or gotten the brand partnership. So I think it was easy at some point to say like, well, this must like we missed revenue goals because people are spending less money and it's it's probably because of the recession. I think that's a almost like a cop out. Like it was just our fault. Like we just didn't we just didn't acquire customers at the pace that we needed to. So for this year, we didn't do a great job meeting our goals because of pretty obvious reasons. And also I think the um the acknowledgement that the economy is going through all sorts of wackiness that um, understanding how we are positioned in much broader ecosystem has started to help us have helpful conversations around how do we want to grow? What does growth look like? Does it look like the type of growth that shoots a big old stock way up high to grow some sunflower at the top? Or does it look like spreading out root systems really wide? And does it look like growing a tree? Like there's so many, so many different forms that growth can take. And so that's been fun. Like, like next year we're, we're taking a um, kind of a survive, thrive, grow approach to planning where we're making three different plans. Like here's, here's what, what thriving looks like. Um, and, and, and if that goes really well, then we would step out of uh, section B and, and go into section C, which is grow model. And that's been fun to, to take that idea that we have that people always need to be in a conversation with, with their, with the reality into more of a tactical approach. But I don't know. I, I'm I'm just I'm just a random girl in Asheville, North Carolina running a pottery company. So <laughs> I, I don't really have much to say about about recessionary spending. I think if you build a good brand and you you people really like your product and if they have three dinner plates and they really want a set of six, they're probably gonna come back and and buy the other three from you. They're not gonna go buy some some that look kinda like the three that they already have that are cheaper somewhere else. But I think in order to to make that real, you you got to be good to your customers. You got to be good to the people that that make the things that that you're selling to your customers. Like you, you got to practice what you preach. Um, customers can sniff that from miles away, you know, or at least the ones that you want to keep around. Well, and it's challenging because you have such a high return customer rate. Yes, I, sort of right. You are you are the envy. Of so many companies, we make an incredible product. <laughs> like, right, it's really nice. You make an incredible product. People fall in love with it, and then yeah. they want more of it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, right? I mean, if you, I can get so salty and be like, "East Fork is purposeless." Like, what am I doing? No one needs another plate. And then I like <laughs> go read the reviews on our website, and every single person is like, "This mug fills me with a type of joy that I had no idea I could get from." <laughs> A household a object, yes. I mean, and it, and <laughs> I, I'm not putting those words into those. Those are people. That's what they're saying. Like, people love it, and yeah, you're, if you buy a mug, it, it feels really good in your hand, and it looks really good, and your friends want one too, and like people start taking them on vacation, so they don't want to use the crappy Airbnb mugs that someone has that has like a really uncomfortable handle, and and we have a really high. If we want to talk marketing stuff, we have a really high lifetime customer value. Like people. Once you're committed to the East Fork lifestyle, like you stick around because it is the best plate on the market. We're not mm-hmm. talking about like an Hermes plate with like decoration and stuff. Like it's something that's like your everyday dinner plate that looks good that you can put in the dishwasher. I think it's the best product out there. So yeah, I feel 
I feel good that our the customers who get introduced to us are going to continue wanting to shop with us. So I'm not super worried about. I mean, there's there's so many. It's not useful to worry about that. There's like, yeah. <laughs> well, so it used to be you couldn't keep the darn mugs in stock. Mm-hmm. It used to be that part of the story of East Fork was, oh my god, they made this amazing mug. Everybody fell in love with it, and it goes up on the website and it sells out within minutes. And 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 now you've caught up with yes. that. So yeah, like we talked about, there aren't that many manufacturers of, of dinnerware left in the country, and they, it's it's not cost effective to make things in the United States. I'm sure <laughs> no one is shocked to hear that. Um, I think that there were a lot of companies. I mean, we know. I'm sure lots of people know what happens to Lennox, um, who are listening. Um, there's so Sadly. many. Yeah, very sad. And just people who had really built beautiful businesses here in the U.S. making making really beautiful products just didn't make financial sense anymore. And so when everybody started offshoring labor and and there were all of these factories all across the country that were just left like just emptied we spent a lot of time and money and and um tears and blood and sweat to um to build out a, a real manufacturing facility here um and so we've always talked about the process like we've never we took handmade off of the website years ago we always talk about, you know, t- show images of the inside of our factory, talk about the people who work there, talk about how, uh, like, if we post a job, it's it cracks me up that we still get people who apply who are like, you should hire me because I love making pottery. I'm like, that is not uh, helpful <laughs> here. Like, you're not, that's not what we're looking for. Like, there's nothing that we do that would indicate that we're, like, all sitting at potter's wheels throwing pottery. But people still have this idea that that that's what it's about. And it's funny because there are a lot of people in the world who make pottery, like a lot of people in this country who make pottery and sell it at craft fairs. We used to do it. We did it better than most. John and Alex are freaking phenomenal craftspeople, like next level. Like, you know, they'll tell you in a heartbeat that that doing what we're doing now is wildly more difficult and unprecedented than than making yeah. pottery on a potter's wheel. So it's it's interesting that the the ways that people want to um, apply value to things and say, like, well, why would I buy this thing because it's you know made made this way? Um, instead of it's not worth it because it's made by a machine. Like so many people who are trying to make pottery by hand and sell them at craft fairs, like they can't pay themselves. Like they don't have health insurance. Like it's not a sustainable way of doing things. And so when we started thinking about scaling the business, like we we didn't want to scale a business that was a bunch of like art school graduates who wanted to make, make art pots all day long. We wanted to give jobs to people that paid well and they could get their health insurance covered and they can have a 401k making a product that is that was better than the products that we made on the wheel. When we first spoke with you, I, I think it was Fiesta Ware's manufacturer, right? Was the big was the big target? We want to get bigger mm-hmm. than than them, and and is that is that still a goal? Is that still? Oh gosh, Alex. Alex does pay attention to that, but I, he so he'd be <laughs> the person to answer that question. I mean, he's is still <laughs> a little bit bigger than us, um, and you know, we have very different ways of approaching our business. Um, and, and they're, they're still like beautiful, beautiful work. Yeah, that's the most comparable business to, to East Fork um, in, in the U.S. I think they have like five plants now in different places. And they're, none of them are uh, – all the plants are kind of smaller than – they have like several smaller plants now. Don't quote me on any of that though. No, but I mean at, at one point it was, oh, we want to get bigger than X. Yeah. And I sense that there's less of a – we want to get bigger than this 
competitor or that. I sense that 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 has long ago been let go as the driving. I mean, right? That has long ago. We that ship has had to. Yeah, we've had to to sail away from that right. harbor. Um, yeah, we were we were growing you know, two X, three X year over year for, for years. And and next year we're still going to be growing, but it's, yeah, we're, we're building some plants. Like what does it look like to grow 10%? What does it look like to go 20%? What does it, <laughs> you know, more like that. Um, and still yeah. like we invested in, in all this equipment. Like we, we, we can make pottery, we can make so much more pottery next year than we are making now um, as equipment starts coming online. We have to kind of see that through like the, we have the infrastructure now to to grow into something bigger, um, and so that sets some helpful parameters around around where we're headed. Like, how can we maximize the investments that we've already made and do the things that we're doing more efficiently? So we're not focused on the recession. We're not focused on all of that. We're we're focused on everyone living healthier lives, a little <laughs> work-life balance. We're focused on being here now. Right. <laughs> and just feeling so grateful. And maybe eventually, longer term, we're thinking about the Connie Matisse political campaign. Oh, gosh. I don't we're know. I don't thinking know. About, I've got some ideas. I don't uh, know if I'm ready to share them on Business well, at Home, but people should definitely stay. I have I got some... I have some plans. I think you do. First and foremost, I'm gonna I wanna take my kids out mountain biking after school some days. <laughs> That's right. So family first. We've got some real time we wanna spend with those girls and and make up for some lost time there. But then I think eventually I'm really excited about being able to 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 say the things I want to say without having yes. to say them on behalf of East Fork, which is really tricky. I ultimately, like, I have real bills to pay. We have investors on the cap table. I have like sure. commitments that I've made, and I can only say so much. And uh, you know, my, my my business partners probably don't get they get sick of me hearing talking about the appending apocalypse right. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, gee, I can't imagine why that would be something they'd be sick about hearing. But you can talk about it. Hopefully, I've got a skills yes. spreadsheet happening. People, like, they're yes. gonna. I'm gonna have a crew of people who know what to do when the time comes, and we're gonna we're gonna right. be living life nicely. And you are you are building an incredible organization where people are gonna thrive and grow. That's right. And right? Yeah. And I think it's yeah. fun. We have these conversations at work in a way that is like not doom and gloom. Like we just, it's, yes. I think turning the, turning the attention to how can we to look at the enormity of the problems that, that we're facing globally, that we're facing at a community level. How can we like be really tender with ourselves that all of us have been through hell and back. And some people have, have really had it really bad the last few years. And um, how can we look at that and, and, try to bring in some hope and some joy and some pleasure and some some levity and and creativity into those conversations and normalize them more because i think the more we the more we just come out and say hey this thing that we're doing isn't working what are some other ideas that everybody has like what do you think we should do and start have those conversations in a real fruitful generative way i think we can move away from that that feeling of powerlessness that can just keep everyone in anxiety mindset all the time. Well, there you go. You see, you don't think you can deliver a hopeful message, but there it is. <laughs> there is there is hope for the future and and all of us coming out of this feeling better. So thank you for that. Thank you for making time to talk with us and and in the end lifting us lifting us up a little bit and and not just talking about the future dystopia. But uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate you. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Sculling. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.